Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. And we're off. Welcome, everybody, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Welcome back, welcome back. Well, what is in store today? We're doing Young's Greatest Pupils again today. We're circling back to Louise von Franz. Uh, It's been a little while since we've talked about her. I like her, though. I like her... um, I like her take. So when we get to these von Franz episodes, it seems like it's a little bit less pie-in-the-sky, abstract uh, stuff. Because what we're doing is we're actually talking about fairy tales, actual fairy tales. It's one thing for somebody like Jung or Neumann to talk about archetypes, to talk about um, certain biblical stories in connection to, or or mythological stories in connection to some psychological force or or something like that. Um, I think it's colorful. It, It makes those conversations colorful to reference mythological stories. What what von Franz does, though, is she starts with the mythological stories, and then she points out where those archetypes are manifesting themselves and how we can see ourselves in those stories. And I think it adds something to this whole exploration of Jung and depth psychology and all that sort of thing. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to, get, back to, to get back to von Franz. Um, the theme of the chapters that we covered for this episode are, well, they're images of the mountain and of paradise. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of paradise, probably the Garden of Eden or uh, the Illusion Fields or whatever they're called. So all these various heavens and, and uh, you know, paradisal states uh, may come to mind, the Golden Age, all that sort of thing. Uh, the mountain, though, is maybe a little bit more interesting, actually. Because the mountain is, well, it's a real place, you know. I can't point to Eden. I can't, I can't visit Eden. But, you know, I can, visit, I can visit the holy mountain. And every culture seems to have a holy mountain. Every culture who lives in a mountainous area, anyway. The ones that don't seem to be building their own. You know, pyramids come to mind. So a mountain is interesting. And the image of a mountain is interesting. And von Franz is going to tell us why that is uh, today. So that brings me to my intro. Short and sweet, it goes a little something like this. The mountain is an image, um, as an image, excuse me, is the place where the earth meets heaven, right? The mountain is the place where earth meets heaven. The earth lunges up towards the heavens, right? Mountains are sometimes regarded as physically holding up the heavens. And you might think of somebody like Atlas, you know, from from ancient Greek myth, literally holds up the world. 
mountains were seen by ancient people to literally hold the heavens up above the earth. Um, as though the realm of the gods literally rests upon the mountain, you know, because if you think about something like Olympus, you know, from the ancient Greek myth, that's the place where the gods live, you know, up on the, up on the holy mountain in the highest peak and that, that bit of rock that you can't see from the ground that, that disappears, you know, into the clouds, that kind of thing, that mysterious misty place. They're also therefore symbolic of the place where consciousness and the unconscious meet. So the place where heaven meets earth, the place where the unconscious meets the conscious. And that's why it's a holy and a sacred place. Mountains are considered holy all across the globe, especially the highest peak. You know, think Mount Ararat, Mount Sinai, Mount Olympus, Mount Fuji in Japan. The sacred mountain was the model for the Egyptian pyramid, just like the ziggurats from... from uh, um, Mesopotamia, and the Mesoamerican temples, the Aztecs and the Mayans, which symbolize ascending into the heavens, right? You climb up the ziggurat steps, or you, you allow your eyes to move from the base of the pyramid all the way up to, to the peak, to the pinnacle. And what we see there is a symbol of ascension, you know, rising up. The mountain is also the realm of dwarves, and, and trolls and things from northern European fairy tales. They're populated by supernatural forces in mountains. And the caves that appear in those mountains are often habitation for dragons and monsters. They're literally filled, habit, you know, habitated by these supernatural forces. So mountains are reservoirs for treasure, you know. That's what the dragon is there to protect, some sort of treasure, Thus the need for supernatural protection. A quest up the mountain is sure to be life-threateningly dangerous, but always also holds the promise of great gain to the hero who dares ascend. The mountain is a challenge, a conquest, and an ascension towards the highest and the mountain is a symbol, so it leaves the highest up to our imagination. You know, the highest way of being, the highest moral virtue, the highest goal, whatever is at the top of the hierarchy. You know, whatever we're, whatever we're seeking after. And that brings me to the first section, which is aptly named the mountain. All right, so the first quote goes like this. Von Franz says, A widespread symbol of the land of the soul is the mountain, which came to stand for the unconscious, since their tops are often covered in mist, and reach like a transition into heaven. The gods themselves manifest on mountain peaks. So think about Olympus, uh, where the gods, where the ancient Greek gods lived. Think about Moses meeting God, right? to receive the Ten Commandments. Where did that happen? On the top of Mount Sinai, the place where man can meet God, can encounter God. That's the mountain peak. Von Franz says, in the Chinese fairy tale called How a Scholar Chastised the Princes of Hell, a man who is on his way to hell comes first to a big mountain 
the mountain of the dead, the border between the human world and the underworld. So you might think of that as the border between the conscious and the unconscious, right? The underworld, the land of the gods. Um, that's always in contrast to the land of the living. It, it represents the unconscious, you know, and von Franz is always apt to point that out. The mountain represents the border between the conscious and the unconscious, between the mortal and the supernatural. She goes on, she says, female demons... So think about that maybe as just supernatural forces. Female demons are connected to the symbol of the mountains. Thus, in the Irish tale, the mountain of the light woman, in the heart of the mountain there is a magnificent palace where fairies of irresistible beauty live. They occasionally do good, but are known to put their own children in the beds of real children. You guys have ever heard of Changelings? Um, I believe there was a popular movie about that not long ago. But this is the origin, right? The fairies that steal away the children from, from their cribs and replace them with fakes. Through their gaze, von Franz says, they make their victims unconscious or ill. The light women are of the same kind as the old Germanic Valkyries, the white ancestress who live in the mountain and watch over the treasure, or the dead. With the Aztec, a legendary mountain is even called the White Woman. In many places, mountains carry the name of female beings. And I think the point that Von Franz is making, because she made it earlier in the book many times, is that the female sex in images corresponds to the unconscious. So whenever you see some pairing of a male and female in a dream or a myth or a vision, um, that's very commonly what the female represents is the unconscious. And that, the white woman, is also the name of, of the holy mountain to the Aztecs. And lots of mountains are given names, well, female names. And that is a connection between this deep understanding of the mountain as the border between the heaven heavens and the earth, the border between the land of the living and the dead, between the conscious and the unconscious. Von Franz goes on to say, another widespread motif is that one should not partake of victuals from the other world, otherwise one must remain there. So this is interesting. This has come up before uh, with Von Franz fairy tales, but it also comes up in all kinds of myths. You aren't supposed to eat or drink anything in a magical place. That's how the myths go. There's always dangers to doing that. If you eat, for instance, in the, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you eat the um, herb of immortality, um, then you can't go back to the land of the living. The same thing with the apples of Hesperides in, in the ancient Greek religion. The food of the gods, the soma, the thing that allows the gods to be immortal. If you come into contact with that in a dream or in a vision, or if you, know, if you were taken to heaven or whatever it might be, if you consume something in that, in that land of the gods, in that unconscious realm, there's dangers in doing that. And so it's, it's something like this. To eat is to ingest, to take something into yourself, to incorporate it into your, right? What you eat becomes your body, and it becomes the energy that's needed to move your body, right? So when you eat something, you integrate it into yourself. And that's a psychological concept. 
to integrate the shadow, as Jung would say, to take these psychological forces that exist within you and to learn how to master and harness them, right? To become to become yourself the top of the hierarchy in control of all of these other psychological forces. The same things that the ancients called gods, right? So you go in, you go, you have an opportunity in the unconscious world to ingest something. You want to think about that as a symbol of integration, of bringing it into yourself. Or maybe to make it conscious. To make something that's unconscious in you conscious. And one is never the same after, after integration. You know, it's something like being transformed. You're a new thing. You didn't used to have this integrated, integrated bit in you, and now you do. And there's another word that comes to mind, apart from transformed, that has religious connotations. It's to be born again. You know, when you have a psych- psychological integration, you are born anew as something new. And that may be the meaning of of remaining there, right? If you if you eat something in the land of the dead and you have to stay there, you're never allowed to go back home. You know, having integrated that, you might think of that as something like the old you, right? You, you've been transformed by that that integration. So the old you is the thing that you're leaving behind in the unconscious. The new you is something that flies free, like the phoenix, you know. And one may escape an encounter with the unconscious, but that which parts ways with it will not be the same thing that encountered it in the first place. Something like that. And this brings us to the first fairy tale that Von Franz is going to lay on us today. Fairy tales from, um, it's from the UK. It's a Cornish fairy tale. It's called The Page and the Silver Goblet. And I'll summarize it for you like this. A beloved servant boy in the castle hears tales of fairies that live near a great mound called Fairy No. All right, so I'll stop for for a second just to tell you mounds are very common, you know, earthworks uh, where ancient people would would uh, well they would they would build a man-made hill for various reasons. Sometimes they would use them as tombs, sometimes that like you can I live in Ohio, and of course we have mound-building Indians that lived here long before Europeans. Um, the Hopewell and the Adena and some of these the four ancient cultures that, that built these giant mound earthworks. This is the kind of thing that you see in, in, um, in the UK from these ancient people. So Fairy No is one of these mounds, and you can think about that like a, like a mountain. It's like a you know, smaller version, but a big mound ascending from the ground towards the heavens. So let me pick back up with the with the story here. He is warned that the little folk are not to be trusted and that he should avoid them. But his curiosity gets the better of him. He sneaks out at night and approaches Fairy No, where he finds the top of the mound open and light streaming out. He slips inside and finds himself in the company of fairies, gnomes, and elves having a feast. They invite him to join and drink from a silver goblet. All right, so I'll stop for a second and just mention the warning that we just talked about a moment ago about consuming something in this spirit world, in the land of the dead, in the unconscious realm. And this is what's happened to the servant boy. He's gone into the fairy no mound. 
He's encountering their fairy, fairies and supernatural creatures, right? So he is in this supernatural place. And the first thing that's offered to him is a silver goblet to drink from. So again, there's danger there. The story continues. When his turn arrives, however, he cried, I'll drink to you all in water. And instantly the wine in, in the goblet turns to water. Instead of drinking, he threw the water onto the candles and escapes with the goblet into the darkness. He is chased violently by fairies, but manages to escape to safety by the skin of his teeth. All right, so you can see the basic outline of the hero story. You can see the servant boy going into the unknown world, going into the spirit world where there's dangers. You can see him avoiding, you know, um, uh, the pitfalls. He doesn't drink out of the goblet. He doesn't curse himself. He, you know, he escapes from the fairies. And he does that with treasure, right? He escapes with the goblet. So he goes into the unknown and he returns with treasure. This is the basic outline of the hero story. And we see it, we see it reflected here in this story. And of course, there's a mound here, fairy uh, no, and so the mound takes the place of the mountain in this story. It's very like a mountain, serves the same purpose as the mountain. You might also find something interesting if you're a careful listener. You might have noticed that when the when the boy throws, when the boy changes his wine into water, and rather than drinking it, throws it on the candles, he puts out the fire. Right, he creates smoke. He creates a, a, a diversion so he can escape. But what else has he done? Well, he's he's performed a miracle, right? He's turned wine into water. <laughs> Not just any miracle, right? He's done the opposite miracle as Jesus Christ, right? Who turned water into wine. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Well, von Franz tells us water instead of wine points to sobriety, which you might call consciousness. Instead of inebriation, which is the path to the unconscious, right? We, we connect, we connect um, inebriation with the god Dionysus from ancient Greece, you know, the god, the god of the vine, you know, and becoming drunk, being possessed by the spirits, right? That's why we call alcohol spirits in the first place, is, is, a, is a direct experience of the divine, right? So... The contrast between the wine and water here is clearly a contrast between the conscious waking world and the unconscious spirit world. And von Franz says, his hasty escape mirrors the typical experience of a nightmare. So she's making the connection between the fairy tale and what you might call just an ordinary sort of dream experience. Now the water, right? He, he turns the wine into water, and water is also a symbol of the of the um, uh, the unconscious, which is interesting. Um, you know, the the sea often is considered to be a symbol for the unconscious. It's the place where um, you know anything can can hide, right? In this giant ex expanse of of water. So that's interesting, and it brings us to another myth from completely across the globe. It brings us to Australia. We're going to hear an Aboriginal story called A Legend of Flowers. I'm going to be uh, guessing on pronunciation for some of this, so bear with me, but an Aboriginal story from Australia. 
If you don't know, guys, the people that live in Australia are one of the ethnologically oldest peoples on Earth. Obviously, there's lots of tribes there, lots of languages, tons and tons of languages and religions that exist in Australia. But the people there, they migrated there a very, very long time ago. And their culture has been, well, separated from the rest of the world for a very, very long time. So some of their, some of their, well, their religion certainly, their languages certainly, their culture in all sorts of ways represents a very, very old way of thinking that's uninfluenced by other people's ideas. So, so these ideas that we hear from the Aboriginal people in Australia, they represent some of the most most primitive and unadulterated religious stories there there is, and this is one of them, a legend of flowers. So we're going to get introduced to a character named, um, I'm sure I'll mispronounce it, but Baemi, and that's the name of their creator god in this tribe. So it starts like this. When Baemi left the earth to dwell in heaven, all the flowers on earth ceased growing. All right, I'll stop there for a second. So in sub-Saharan Africa, it's very, very common that those tribes believe in a creator God. And he's sort of like a monotheistic God. He's sort of like the top dog. And there really aren't other gods of importance. Oftentimes there are spirit, supernatural, spiritual powers and all that. But there's really only one God, certainly only one creator. And you see the same thing in these aboriginal stories, where you have a high God by Amy. And when, when the creation is over, you know, when the God has done the work of creation... He disappears, and many of these um, ancient religions from sub-Saharan Africa have that as a part of their religious tradition. God created the world, and then he disappeared, and he left. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. You can't blame God. You know, God was good. He gave us an opportunity to exist, and then he disappeared. And this is kind of what you see reflected in this aboriginal story. Baemi left the earth, and when he did, all the flowers stopped growing. It's almost like it's almost like the creator God is some important power. Like his existence on the earth is something that allows the plants to grow, that allows the flowers to bloom. It's something like a spirit of life, you know? And when he left, it left. And the flowers didn't grow. And the myth continues, the landscape was less beautiful and the honey dried up. After some time, the people sent sorcerers to go find Baemi and ask that flowers be restored to the land. They travel far to the Obi Obi Mountain, whose peak disappears in the clouds. They climb the mountain for four days before they reach the top. And there they find a circle of stones and a spring bubbling with the water of life. When they drink from the spring, the voice of God speaks to them. They pleaded their case, and the Spirit transports them through an opening in the sky to a land full of immortal flowers. He tells them to pick the flowers and tell your tribes when you take them these flowers that never again shall the earth be bare of them. Now make haste and take this promise and the faded flowers which are a sign of it to your people. They then returned home and scattered the flowers far and wide. And where they fell, 
their kind have grown ever since. So I don't know what comes to your mind there. Obviously, the fact that they have to go and find God, they have to travel far to find the God who abandoned them, and they find him at the peak of the Obi-Obi Mountain, right? So just like Mount Sinai in the Bible, when Moses goes up to, to receive the Ten Commandments, this is what's happened to these aboriginals. They found the holy mountain. They've climbed the top. It took them four days, you know. That's a, that's a, a trial, you know, a dangerous one. And the treasure they bring home are these sacred immortal flowers that bring back the beauty and life to the vegetation of the earth and, bring, and return to them, you know, this one delicacy that these primitive people had, you know, full of calories, the honey, right? That would have been such a treat, such an uh, important food source. But there are other interesting things about this story. It parallels the biblical Noah story in several important ways. First, the occurrence on the peak of a sacred mountain, right? Obi-Obi versus Ararat or Mount Sinai. Second, the pleading to God for a return of life. In the Aboriginal story, it's flowers. In the biblical story of the flood, it's all the animals and vegetable life that, you know, that exists. Right? The world gets flooded. Noah preserves that life and brings it back to the earth. And then also the promise returned by God to man. In the aboriginal story, God says, Tell your tribes that never again shall the earth be bare of them. In chapter 6 of Genesis, it says, The Lord said, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. And just as the perpetual presence of flowers serves as a reminder of this promise, the same is said in Genesis chapter 9 of the rainbow. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Isn't that interesting? <sighs> Amazing. In both stories, God is approached through a mountain, a symbol of the unconscious. God is sensitive and responsive to the plight of its creation and can be negotiated with. And in both stories, a treasure is retrieved and brought back to the conscious world. It's a hero story, whether we're talking about Noah or whether we're talking about the aboriginal story. And von Franz points out another parallel to Genesis, um, calling back the opening of the aboriginal story. She says, With Baami's retirement, the blossoming happy age disappeared, a paradise with its wonder wonderful flora. Given that the Noah account immediately follows the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise, we can see in both stories the loss of paradise, you know, an original state of unconscious perfection. So whether we're talking about Eden, or whether we're talking about the land full of flowers before God left and took them with him, you know, in both cases there was this original paradise, state of, of perfection. And von Franz says, the magical place, in this case the mountain, is not only the unconscious as a realm enlivened by spirits, but further, the creative foundation of life itself, out of which individual life over and over again renews itself. 
So what does she mean? Well, what happens in the Aboriginal story when they finally get to the top of the mountain? They see a circle of stones and a spring that bubbles out of the mountain that has contains the water of life. And I think we're all familiar with that uh, sort of mythological trope, the fountain of youth, that sort of thing. So the water of life is what can be found if you climb the mountain of the unconscious and, and are lucky enough to reach its peak unscathed. There's a treasure there, and it has to do with life. It has to do with immortality. And you see that same thing in the, in the Adam and Eve story that parallels this. Because in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge, they're, they're removed from the garden because God doesn't want them to eat of the tree of life. So just like this water of life bubbling up at the spring, um, in the, in the, Noah, in the uh, Adam and Eve story, rather, you have the tree of life out of which individual life over and over again renews itself. Isn't that interesting? And you have to realize the Aboriginal people, they arrived in Australia early, early on during the migration of human beings. And the fact that this story parallels the biblical story so closely has got to be mind-bendy for you because they're separated by so much distance and so much time that you have to ask. They, I mean, they certainly couldn't have borrowed the story from each other unless the story goes all the way back to before those people split. You know, the people that became the, the Hebrews and the people that became the aboriginals. You know how far back you have to go to get there? So either they share a common origin, these stories, or the common origin has to do with what it's like to be a human being, you know? The aboriginals are just, just as human as the Hebrews. They have the same sort of human experience, the experience of being partly conscious and partly unconscious, the experience of, of being forced into the hero story over and over again in our individual lives. And maybe that's the reason why we see so many parallels. But man, the specific overlap is just hard to explain. And that brings us to our next myth. Equally far away and obscure, this is um, a myth from uh, Palau Island, which is in Micronesia, and it is an isolated island. If you look on a map, it is east of the Philippines and north of New Guinea. Uh, it is way out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a myth from those people, a fairy tale, that's called uh, Nagarod's Bundle. Nagarod's Bundle. So here goes like this. A sacred mountain with twin peaks called Negarod is populated by Tekumalap, evil man-eating devils. One day a fisherman noticed his boat had been stolen by the Tekumalap, so he waited for them all night and lured them in with the smell of roasting coconut. After eating together, they invited the fishermen to their home. They traveled magically through the air to the top of the mountain where a great tree grew. Upon their arrival, the tree opened up like a door to which they entered and closed behind them. The Tekel Malap warned the fisherman that he would meet their mother and that she would offer him a gift, but that he should not accept anything except for an item hidden in the cupboard. 
They then entered the house and confronted a giant woman with huge breasts. The woman offered the fisherman many alluring and powerful gifts, but he refused them all but the item in the cupboard. The item was a piece of sacred tree wrapped in a leaf, and it held the power to heal any illness. The fisherman returned home and healed many people, but eventually envy drove the people to burn his house down and discard the bundle, which humanity lost forever. All right, so before I give you von Franz's interpretation of the story, I want to point out that this happens a lot where in myths where the hero goes into the unknown, uh, has that struggle um, with the dragon or, or the monster or whatever supernatural force you know he has to conquer, he or she has to conquer. And then he wins this treasure that he can bring back to the people, you know, to the for the benefit of himself and humanity. And very often, this treasure gets lost. It's lost on the way back. And I think that's interesting. I mean, it happens in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where, where he goes uh, in search of um, the herb of immortality, but, but loses it, you know, right at the last minute, right before he, he exits, you know, the supernatural place and gets back to the land of living. You know, he's lost it, and so humanity continually misses out on something that has to do with life or immortality. In this case, it's healing the sick, but, you know, it has the same meaning, to sustain life. And von Franz says this. She says, Mount Negarod has twin peaks, an expression for the two faces of the magical realm, exemplified by the double-natured healing and man-eating aspects of the Tecomalop. So here you have a really good point, really. You've got the fact that, that these spirits that inhabit the mountain, that they have, they have this bifurcated uh, existence, you know? They're, they're man-eating devils, but at the same time, they're kind of kind to the fishermen, and they uh, helped the fishermen to avoid destruction by their mother, you know? So... What you've got here is opposites that are held together in union in these devils. You have the good and the bad together, and that union of opposites is something that should be familiar to you because it's what all the Jungians, including Jung himself, call the Ouroboros, you know, the symbol at the beginning of of our myths and at the beginning of our uh, religious histories, that whatever it is that was there in the beginning was something like the union of opposites. And that's, that's the creator that's the divine that's associated with God somehow. And you see a mirror of that in these supernatural demons that live, that populate, you know, the, the sacred mountain. All right, von Franz says, the unconscious, like nature, can act destructively as well as beneficially towards human beings. Whether it works positively or negatively depends in a mysterious way on the individual's conscious attitude towards the unconscious. This is expressed by the hero letting himself be led by the originally evil spirits into the magical world, and by having to withstand the temptation of the ancient mother goddess in order to get to the healing treasure. This polarity of the unconscious is seen mirrored in the double peaks of Mount uh, 
Negarod. It is significant that at the end, it is the evil fellow humans who destroy the gift from the magical kingdom. Profane consciousness annihilates the meaning value of the symbols from the unconscious in that it rationalizes them. That's interesting. Something like, if you ever have a dream, or if you have a a mystical experience, maybe a psychedelic mystical experience, and you feel like you have epiphany after epiphany after epiphany, where you feel like you've gained some important knowledge, and then you come to, or if you're dreaming, you wake up, and before long, it's gone. You can't remember it. You can't make heads or tails of it. You can't recover it. It's gone. And one way of understanding that is the way von Franz just painted it. That when you become conscious again, whatever knowledge it was, no matter how important and valuable, that you earned unconsciously, the moment you return to consciousness, you lose it. And that's what she means when she says that consciousness annihilates the meaning value of symbols from the unconscious. Because it rationalizes something that is irrational. It takes away whatever that meaning was, you know? And taking a treasure from the unconscious to the conscious world, it's a kind of integration, like we were talking about um, with eating before and bringing something into yourself. Making something unconscious conscious is also to make it part of yourself, to make it conscious. This is to make a sacred object profane, to make something supernatural mundane. This is what happens when the meaning value is destroyed. And this is another analogy like eating, you know, the sacred thing, bringing it inside the self. But doing so robs it of its unconscious magic by making it conscious. All right, so my piece on this, this story includes the mountain as the entrance to the spiritual realm. We've seen that over and over and over again today. It doubles the symbolism, though, in fact, by putting a great tree at the top of the mountain. So remember, the tree opens up at the top of the mountain. They go into it. That's how they get into the, into the um, spirit world. So you have two symbols, really. You have to climb the mountain, and when you get to the top, you find a tree. And just like a mountain, you got to climb that tree. It's going to go further towards the heavens, you know. And the tree is also a symbol for the meaning of heaven and earth. Right, Because tr- trees penetrate the sky, and they reach way down into the earth. They connect the heavens and the earth. You know That's why there's a tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden, right? In mythology, that's often called the Axis Mundi, or the world tree. It's seen the same way. You know, there's Native American stories and European stories alike that talk about it, like, like the Nordic Yagrasil, the world tree. And that's what's encountered at the top of the mountain. So in the story, the hero encounters embodiments of the unconscious. Spirits who are bivalent. They're good and evil simultaneously, hearkening back to the Ouroboros. And their originator, their mother, right, who takes the form of the great mother goddess. So we know this by her bivalence. 
she's both terrible and beneficent, right? She's trying to get the fishermen to accept a, a gift that's going to destroy them. But, it, but she's perfectly willing to give them the good gift that's hidden in the cabinet. She's both terrible and good. And she specifically talked about us having enormous breasts. And that's something that connects that image to this great mother goddess that we see in our most ancient past. So if you look at all these Venus figurines from the Stone Age, you know, the Venus of Brassenpoi, the Venus of Willendorf, all these different Venus statues that have been found, they show a, a figure with big hips and big breasts on purpose, obviously. They're way, way, way oversized. Why? To bring your attention to the power of fertility, birth, and creation. We then see the classical hero narrative unfold, where the hero struggles with the dragon. In this case, it's more of a trial of wit rather than a physical fight, you know, with the gifts that are being offered by the mother. And earns a great treasure from the encounter. The treasure is a life-giving, as befits the goddess of creation, and parallels the fruit of the tree of life from Genesis the herb of immortality from the Gilgamesh myth of Babylon and the apples of, of Hesperides, um, the, the ancient Greek food of the gods, all of which were protected by a dragon or a serpent, a symbol of the unconscious, just like the mountain. Lastly, we see the fate of the life-giving bundle end by human hands which mirror back the bivalence of the Tecomalop and their mother. And this confirms a link of identity between the conscious and the unconscious, between the spirits and material reality, because both the unconscious spirits and the conscious human beings contain within them both good and evil. And that brings me to our next myth. This is an Aztec myth, actually. So we got a good diversity here. This one is called How Montezuma Sought the Seven Caves. And I'll summarize it for you like this. Montezuma I wanted to find the home of his ancestors, a legendary island called Atzlan, where there were seven caves. Montezuma's historians told him Atzlan, which means whiteness, is a place with a great hill in the midst of the waters. The ancestors live there in happiness and riches, right? So you can imagine that as paradise. The ancestors lived there in happiness and riches. That's like the Garden of Eden. It's the Golden Age. However, the myth says, after they abandoned that place and came to the mainland, everything turned against them. The weeds began to bite. The stones became sharp and cut. Of course, that part reminds me a bit of Genesis as well. Chapter 4 says, you know, after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, right? It says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy, of thy life. Thorns and also thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. It's exactly the same thing in this story, in the Aztec story. The weeds begin to bite and the stones become sharp and cut, right? 
After hearing this, Montezuma sent his sorcerers to search for the seven caves of their ancestors. They couldn't reach the place without first turning into their Nehual, which is like their animal form, right? So they turn into their spirit form. When they arrive, they did not find the land abandoned, but filled with people who spoke their own language. They were ancestors that stayed behind, and they remained in a deathless state. Montezuma's sorcerers were taken to the sun god's mother, who appeared supremely ancient and dirty. She said, Welcome, my sons. Know that since your god, my son, departed from this place, I have been awaiting his return. She then bestows gifts on them and sends them home. All right, so in the legend of Montezuma, the magical kingdom is known as the place of origin of the people where their ancestors live in a timeless state. And a, and a state without time is, is, well, it's like an unconscious paradise, you know, where nothing dies. It's like the golden age that you see in lots of myths all over the world. Reconnecting back to the land of the ancestors means connecting to the unconscious, where time and space are relativized, and the primordial images are eternally alive. Right? The primordial images is something that Jung called archetypes, and they're like gods. Of course, they're eternally alive. But where are they alive? In the unconscious, in this spirit realm, in this mythological realm. Thus, the population of eternally undying people, spirits, or archetypes, whatever you want to call them, we know that at least some of the inhabitants of Atslan are archetypes because they're understood as gods, you know, the sun god and his mother. And Jung would call, but have no problem calling archetypes, or, or at least uh, gods, you know, classical gods, as images of archetypes. So, this is what's happened in the story. They've gone into the unconscious. They found their ancestors there, you know, the land of the dead, the land of the gods. And there they find ancestors and gods. And they're encountering, you know, the archetypes. Like the aboriginal story, we see here an encounter with the great mother goddess, right? The sun god's mother. She is the mother of the great sun god, who is the Aztec's mythological father, so just like the Aboriginal story, we see remnants of this ancient, ancient Stone Age religion of fertility and creation. And that mother goddess, by the way, is one half of the Ouroboros, Tiamat, Apsu being the other half. Von Franz goes on, she says, In the symbol of the mountain lies still another special meaning, that differenti differentiates it from other symbols of the unconscious. In China, the mountain is a symbol of meditation. It means, in this case, piling up of power, concentration, and also elevation, enlightenment, and thereby the reaching of a higher state. The mountain is, therefore, often the carrier of the highest symbol. The primitive mind which only with great difficulty has recently wrenched itself apart from the unconscious, sees retrospectively a danger in returning to the land of origin. Sometimes, however, one must go back to find again the mother, 
that is the source of life in the unconscious, then the land suddenly appears as an eternal paradise. All right, so here where she says the mountain is the carrier of the highest symbol, what she means there is that the mountain symbolizes the unconscious or God, the highest symbol. Then she says sometimes one must go back there again to find the mother that is the source of life in the unconscious. And this is the hero's story. This is going back to your place of origin, having an encounter again with the unconscious. That's the unknown. That's the place where you struggle with the dragon, where you wrestle with God, and you find the treasure. And what that treasure is, is really the new you. It's the thing that has integrated this terrible encounter with the unconscious that has made you something greater, something more capable. And then you go back to your life, you go back to your land and your people, and you are not the same. You're the hero now. All right, then she introduces a tale from South America called How the Hamara Came to Have Such Big Fine Eyes. She says it gives us an interesting connection between how becoming blind, immersion in water, and becoming an animal are all synonyms for going into the unconscious. All right, so if you, if you see a myth or a, or a religious story where somebody becomes blind or is immersed in water or becomes an animal, that these are all different images of the conscious becoming unconscious. And this tale is going to include all of them. So let's go. Summarize it a little bit like this. In this tale, a man stumbles upon a spirit of the bush in the forest. He was entirely covered in hair and stood weaving a basket. He asked what he was doing, to which the spirit replied he was weaving an eye socket basket. For those who don't know, an eye socket basket is a style of weaving, so it's a certain type of basket. The man returned home and told his people what he saw, but no one believed him. He told them not to sleep that night in case the spirit returned, but they did not heed him. That night the spirit did return, and one by one plucked the eyes from each of the sleeping people and placed them in his eye socket basket. The man watched the whole thing from a hiding place. In the morning, the people awoke unable to see, and the man explained what had happened to them. The blind people said they were no longer fit to live on land, so the man took them to the water. He tied them together so they wouldn't get lost and anchored the rope to a tree. When he returned to check on them, Everyone had magically turned into Hamahimara fish, except for one who had only been half submerged in the water. He was only half fish and still half man. The spirit took pity on the halfling and restored his sight by giving him his own large supernatural eyes. Whew. Okay, so I don't know what you think of that, but, but in this story... We see multiple symbols of the unconscious, blindness, water, and taking on animal form, neatly compressed. The half-fish, half-human person illustrates the therianthrope image, which is a merging of the conscious man with the unconscious animal. 
And we see those therianthropes all over the place in mythology and religion. They're sphinxes, they're angels, they're Lamasu from Babylon, you know, they're the god Hermes, the god the goddess Nike, all of the animal-headed gods of ancient Egypt, half-man, half-animal creatures. And this represents a merging of, of the unconscious and the conscious. And he sees the treasure gained from the experience of the unconscious as a reflection of the same type of merging, as the unconscious spirit gives the halfling his conscious form back, but also gives him his own supernatural unconscious eyes to replace his mortal ones. And in this case, that's the treasure. You know, unconscious eyes, and they're large eyes, which allows him to see, right? Maybe he sees more than the living. Maybe he sees the unconscious as well. He sees the, you know, the, the magic behind existence. You know, who knows what he sees with those eyes? But that, that's the treasure gained in this story. And that brings me to my conclusion. For human beings all over the world, and as far back as we can imagine, the image of the mountain has evoked in us a feeling of awe. And as the hair stood erect upon our arms and neck, we felt ourselves infinitesimally small in contrast to its majesty. This showed us the heights of possibilities, not just for the earth, but for ourselves too. By example, we see the mountain reaching to heaven and believe ourselves capable of the same. We climb the mountain to conquer it, to prove to it that we are its equal. And then we proceed to construct our very own mountains. We mound up the earth. We stack stones and build great pyramids that reach to heaven. Where once we saw the most distant places inhabited by the gods, we now make us tombs and temples through which we can encounter those gods or even become them. And this is a reflection of our circumambulation as a species. Who we are and what we are seeking. Mankind conceives of the highest principle. We place it in the most distant place and project it onto the unknown realms of the misty sky where the mountaintop disappears from consciousness. And then we force ourselves into the unknown where we summit the dangerous mountain where we do battle with the dragon of chaos and come to find the treasure we have placed there. The water of life, the food of the gods, the treasure we have been seeking. We meet the unconscious, the place of our birth, and integrate that great power into ourselves. We make the unconscious conscious, and in so doing, like the Bible says, we eat and live forever. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.